Good morning. Welcome back to the program. In 1977, a 13-year-old aspiring actress was invited to a photo shoot with a famous film director. What happened that day made headlines around the world. Director Roman Polanski, then 43, gave Samantha Gailey a hefty helping of champagne and quaaludes, then raped her at the home of Jack Nicholson. After pleading guilty to unlawful sex with a minor, Polanski fled the country before his court date and made a home in France. Now 50 years old and 36 years after the fact, Samantha Geimer has written a memoir of her experiences entitled The Girl, A Life in the Shadow of Roman Polanski. Lawrence Silver was Samantha's lawyer from the very beginning of this journey and joins us today to talk about a case of remarkable resonance, yet one in which the context for what happened has changed dramatically in the 36 years since. It is my pleasure to welcome Lawrence Silver to the program today to talk a little about The Girl, A Life in the Shadow of Roman Polanski. Lawrence Silver, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's good to have you here. Why now? Why did Samantha decide that this was the time, after all of these years, to come forward with this story? Well, I think that for all of these years, uh, Samantha has been able to maintain her anonymity and has done so um, in part because she's uh, married and she had three boys who were children at the time and uh, it would have been uh, difficult for them to have to deal with this issue. But when they they were now all in their 20s and uh, when Polanski was arrested in 2009 in uh, uh, in Switzerland, they said, you know, Mom, you ought to uh, write your side of the story because so many people have so much misinformation about this case. And her children, now adults themselves, persuaded her to write the book, and that's what she's done. Talk a little bit about context, because certainly you understand, as somebody involved in this from the very beginning, that, that how we view these situations, how we view the world with respect to relationships, power relationships between men and women, the whole context of this story has changed so dramatically in the 36 years. Well, that's true, and I think that um, uh, the society in which this uh, occurred, which was a much more permissive society than the society today, is a... Uh, a uh, a change and a contextual change, uh, but still the actions which were done uh, were illegal then and illegal now. And um, the the problem is, of course, that there was uh, uh, char- criminal charges and a plea agreement of which I participated in negotiating. And I did that because she was 13 years old or 14 by that time, and this was really not the place an international. Uh, focus of attention um, for a 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl. Um, And it should have gone away uh, in 1978 uh, and been done with, and she would have not really been the focus of all the attention. But the judge, uh, who had agreed to sentence Polanski to time served, changed his mind because he, he felt he was being criticized in the newspapers, and he was going to sentence Polanski to an indeterminate sentence that means up to 50 years in jail. And needless to say, that wasn't the arrangement, that wasn't the agreement, that wasn't the deal, and Polanski fled. Somewhat understandably, by the way, but fled. And there's been a fugitive ever since, which has kept the case alive. Right. 
Talk a little bit about what happened with the judge. The judge has since deceased, uh, Lawrence Rittenband. What, what do we know about him, and, and why did he change his mind? Well, first of all, I've appeared before Judge Rittenband many times um, before this case, and he was a wonderful judge. He was smart. He was hardworking. He was fair. He was very creative at times. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, he was nothing less than an excellent judge, but somehow or another when it was a high-publicity uh, case, um, I guess it's now called a high-profile case, he changed, and um, uh, he actually said it quite openly in chambers that he had agreed to uh, the plea bargain sentence but had been criticized in the press. He couldn't handle that for some reason or another, and... Um, was unable to be independent. And so he was going to change the sentence to be an indeterminate sentence, which in California can be basically you get released when the judge exercises his discretion and once you're released, and it could have been up to 50 years. What options existed at that point in terms of seeking a new judge or some kind of appeal at that stage of the legal process? None. There were, no, there were no alternatives. There was later, uh, Polanski's lawyer uh, moved to disqualify Judge Rittenband. Um, he resisted that disqualification, but then after he resisted it, he voluntarily transferred the case from himself to somebody else, so in effect granting the motion for his disqualification. But uh, other, than, other than that, there was no appeal at that point, uh, nor could there have been um, uh, the sentence would be within the discretion of the judge. And that's where, uh, understandably, that's why Polanski fled. Talk a little bit about Samantha at 13. How did you get involved in the case? Talk a little bit about that. Samantha's father uh, was a criminal defense lawyer uh, in Pennsylvania and uh, found me and retained me because uh, Polanski's lawyers at the time had demanded that the judge order Samantha to appear before a psychiatrist on the theory uh, that Samantha had made this whole thing up, it hadn't occurred at all, and that uh, this was a fantasy that she had of having sex with Roman Polanski and that the whole the charges were merely fantasy. Um, I was retained. Her father was outraged. Uh, a criminal defense lawyer was nevertheless outraged at this that her, his daughter was going to be subjected potentially to this type of uh, examination in court proceedings. So he retained me to stop it, which I was able to do, and um, that was actually all I was supposed to do, but then events occurred which required a, additional representation, and I kept doing it and have been doing it for 36 years now. Part of the argument came from the fact that, particularly in L.A. during that period of time, the whole idea of these repressed memory cases were, were in vogue. There was a lot of talk about them at the time. There was. Um, it's uh, pretty amazing that you remember all of that, but, uh, or at least know about all of that. But there were a lot of discussions of repressed memory, and there actually has continued to be uh, today in connection with the uh, sexual assaults uh, by um, uh, members of churches uh, mm -hmm. Children uh, who have done that type of thing, but this was not that case in the sense that 
as I was 13, it was quite has had a fresh memory of what has occurred. It was not a repressed memory, but there was some argument, as I said, that uh, silly as it was, because the photographs and the other materials clearly established that he had plied her with uh, champagne and quaaludes. Tell us a little bit about Samantha's mother and and her attitude at the time, because that that's an important part of the story. It is an important part, and um, her mother was a um, was involved in entertainment in that she was doing commercials, um, and she was a very trusting lady who uh, believed that Polanski, who would never do anything bad to her daughter. Uh, on the day of the photo shoot where the rape occurred, um, Polanski was supposed to, um, Samantha, was supposed to be accompanied by a girlfriend. And right at the end, Polanski, as they were getting in the car, told her, you know, you're maybe we may be very late. And uh, she said, well, I have to be back by a certain time. He said, well, you probably won't be back by that time. So she left. Uh, the mom was still in the house and didn't know about this. And so Polanski uh, and Samantha went alone to Jack Nicholson's house. Talk a little bit about the atmosphere at the time with respect to sympathy that existed and support that existed for Polanski after this happened. Well, there was um, a considerable um, um, number of people who uh, believed some of the pretrial comments that were made. Uh, indeed, even the judge said, uh, I mean, there, were, there was arguments that um, basically Samantha's mother delivered Samantha to Polanski in exchange for some assistance in her career. Uh, that was utter nonsense. And uh, there was also that uh, Samantha, this was a casting couch with a 13-year-old child. Um, and there were all, because Samantha and her family tried to maintain a certain level of privacy, these stories just caught like, on like wildfire. And um, indeed, even the judge said, what do I have here, a mother-daughter hooker team? Uh, he said that in open court, which is really astounding and outrageous. And one of the reasons that motivated Samantha to write the book, I mean, she says in the book, uh, there's been so much written about this, and so much of it is lies, uh, or uh, perhaps even unintentional falsehood, that I decided to tell the truth and tell what happened for real and let people know what had occurred. There was also the sense that one of the things that gave the story the power and the resonance it had, and again this comes back to context, is that it played into popular perceptions about the sense of indulgence in California in that period of time in the mid to late 70s. Yes, and I think that in the book, Samantha describes the considerable difference between um, the relatively permissive times of the 70s and the non-permissive times, uh, contextually, as you put it, uh, that are now, and that um, that perhaps was um, a predominant view at the time. Uh, since that time, we have had a number of uh, sorry episodes of child molestation. Um, the um, Elizabeth Smart case, for example, uh, the case of the young girl in Steubenville, Ohio, um, a girl who committed suicide as a result of rising out of her rape, um, where the judges um, sentenced the defendant to 30 days in jail. Um, I think that those cases um, 
has caused us to be uh, a great deal more um, serious about viewing uh, sexual assaults on children. And of course, we have the rather enormous number of children who were assaulted by churchmen um, during this period of time, too. And I think that all of that has changed the public viewpoint on sexual assault of, 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 young, of youngsters. What it also does is it makes it harder, I think, for a lot of people to understand Samantha Geyer's point of view at this point, which which is to a large extent, let's move on, this has already happened, let's get over it, and even a, a certain sense of forgiveness towards Polanski that she exhibits. I think that that's correct, and that a lot of people don't understand why she has forgiven him as she has uh, publicly and, and reiterates in the book what I think people forget uh, is that she has said, you know, if you don't, if you have rage and if you have anger and if you have um, these kind of feelings, they not only, they hurt primarily you um, and that um, I have forgiven Polanski, not for him, she says in the book, but rather for me because uh, I want to get rid of these uh, evil feelings. You know, uh, there's a wonderful story about Nelson Mandela, who was after 20-some years freed from prison in South Africa, and he would not leave his prison cell until he was physically able to look, shed his anger because he didn't want wanted to leave the anger in the prison cell because he didn't want to live his life with that anger. And I think that Samantha, in her own way, feels pretty much the same. Talk a little bit about the immediate impact on Samantha and how it affected her in her adolescent years and as a young adult, the years following all of this. Well, I think that um, she had a rather interesting adolescence indeed. I said it's true that much of that I never knew anything about until I read the, the book for the first time. Uh, it really wasn't necessary for me to know uh, her dalliances as an, as a, uh, an adolescent um, to represent her in other matters. And um, I think it's had an impact, and indeed she has had to live a life, as she says, in the shadow of Roman Polanski, and hopefully this book is one where she comes out of that shadow, but... I remember, uh, Jeff, that we had a, a call. I had a call on Labor Day from her, and I said, what's going on? And she said that she and her entire family were lying on the floor of her house because there was a, photo, uh, a crew of photo photographers outside trying to snap pictures through the windows and that she and her family had left the blinds or the curtains open, and therefore they were able to shoot through. Um, this is not the way to spend your life uh, lying on the floor uh, trying to hide from photographers. And it has had a constant impact. She has been um, victimized by, obviously, the criminal activity of Polanski, but also been victimized by the attention of being the victim in a celebrity crime. To what extent does she see herself as a, as a celebrity in all of this? I think she's tried to avoid believing uh, being a celebrity, but I think that she's been thrust uh, involuntarily into a uh, limelight that she would like to get rid of. And in fact, has directed me, as I've tried to for now a number of years, to get the case dismissed just so it can be chapter over and go on from here. But that 
hasn't happened, unfortunately. The case is still an open case, and every time there is something that happens to Polanski, whether he releases a new movie, he is nominated for an Academy Award, he wins an Academy Award. Why every part of that, every time that there's an article, it mentions uh, this case, and it encourages a lot of focus and attention. Uh, for example, when he was arrested in Switzerland uh, in 2009, within about a week, between Samantha and myself, we had over 500 telephone calls. People wanting to interview her, people wanting to have photographs of her. One of the things that is so remarkable is how strong the opinions still are with respect to Polanski, that it is so, to this day, 36 years later, so polarizing. That's true, and that may be the, the result of that, is that half the story has been, until this book, not told, and that the uh, uh, people were assuming things to be true, which were, turned out not to be true at all. And, um, you know, there's a, there was a theory that her mother delivered Samantha uh-huh. uh, to Polanski to advance her career, or that Samantha was on a quasi-casting couch at age 13. And none of this was, of course, true. But a lot of people believed it, and a lot of people repeated it. And hopefully this book will put things to rest in that regard. Is it your hope, is it Samantha's hope, that this might aid in finally getting the case dismissed? Oh, of course, yes. What's been the chief obstacle to that? Well, the chief obstacle is that Polanski is a fugitive, and as a fugitive, he's not technically before the court. He has uh, violated a court order, uh, and he has, uh, to appear for his sentencing. Um, the law in the United States has been what's known as the Fugitive Disentitlement Act. That nothing can happen against the request of a fugitive until he returns and appears before the court. So the Fugitive Disentitlement Act has precluded the case from moving forward. Polanski is not about to come back to the United States and run the risk of 50 years in jail. Um, in inconsistent with the, with the plea agreement that was reached 35 years ago. So the case appears to be will remain open unless uh, somebody agrees that if, even if Polanski comes, that case will be dismissed. The other aspect is that prosecutors in Los Angeles have often used this case for their own political purposes. Um, well, we we found it peculiar that <laughs> the case uh, was substantially for years dormant until... Steve Cooley decided to run for Attorney General. Talk a little about that and the degree to which that, because it seemed so transparent, should have had some larger impact in people's perception of, of this case. Well, it, it, well, to some it was transparent, uh, perhaps to you and perhaps to me, but it was not generally, and a lot of people um, congratulated Cooley for doing this. You know, right after the event, when Polanski fled, uh, the then district attorney and the assistant district attorney, Roger Gunson, um, declined to bring any charges against Polanski for fleeing, um, though he could have. I mean, there was a, um, they could have sought his arrest for a failure to uh, comply with bail requirements uh, for fleeing the jurisdiction, but they didn't do that. And that was done all of a sudden, uh, 35, 30, well, 33 years later, uh, because um, 
for no apparent reason. All of a sudden, there was a great effort to bring him back, and that was coincidental to Cooley's attempt to be elected attorney general. Um, nevertheless, uh, having done that, uh, certainly Polanski was a, 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 a fugitive. Uh, he had every right to seek his extradition, but the timing of it obviously was uh, hmm. transparent. Has there been any contact ever between Polanski and Samantha? Uh, yes, um, in a minor sort of way. Um, there have been a uh, he wrote her uh, an email. He saw there was a documentary um, that discussed uh, primarily the behavior. Of, of the judge, Judge Rittenband, and that documentary is called The Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired, Wanted as, as a Fugitive in One Jurisdiction and Desired in Another, mainly Europe. And um, as a result of that, um, watching that movie, uh, Polanski wrote a letter of apology to Samantha. It set forth in the circumstances and the of apology is quoted in the in the book. Is there ever been a sense that some kind of joint statement by them would have some impact in finally putting this thing to rest? Well, I don't, there, there hasn't been a joint statement, but certainly both of them have uh, said, um, not necessarily jointly, but simultaneously, that the case is uh, should have been resolved. Then uh, there was a plea agreement. Polanski, to this day, is willing to abide by the plea agreement. Um, however, the prosecution won't say whether or not they are willing to abide by the plea agreement, though they should. Certainly, we, Samantha would urge uh, compliance with the plea agreement. Um, but until that becomes open um, and becomes resolved, it's gonna, the case can remain open. But uh, to answer your question, there is no joint effort, but there's been a simultaneous effort where both Polanski and Samantha have urged that the case be done with and be over because had the plea agreement been entered, had been entered into, been properly enforced, the case would have been over 35 years ago. What has been the impact of what I'll refer to as outside agitators in a way in this story, commentators on television, people like Gloria Allred, etc.? Well, as Samantha sets forth in the book, there is uh, a number of people who have said... uh, things about her which are not true, um, and that there are what she calls a victim industry. Um, I think she identifies Dr. Phil and Nancy Grace and Gloria Allred, who um, um, prevail by making victims. They have not been particularly nice to Samantha because um, they've called her a weak victim because she has forgiven Polanski and uh, he has urged that the charges against him after 35 years be dismissed. Where do you think this is all going to go from here, Lawrence? Um, I don't think things are going to change. I don't think that Polanski's coming back. I think that under the fugitive disentitlement law that the case will remain open and not get dismissed. Um, there's The district attorney has discretion to dismiss the action, uh, and we have certainly not only requested it, we've demanded it in various uh, court proceedings. But uh, as long as it remains open, it will be open. And what impact does Samantha think that this book and finally coming forward with this story, what impact does she think that it will have on her life? 
Well, I think that the book, I mean, the title of the book is sort of tells a lot uh, that uh, she has lived in the shadow of Roland Polanski. She has lived in that shadow because she's tried to maintain her uh, anonymity. Uh, she clearly has given that up by writing this book and identifying herself, and I think she hopes to step outside of that shadow and um, not be more controlled by it than it has already done. Lawrence Silver, the book is The Girl, A Life in the Shadow of Roman Polanski, about the life of Samantha Geimer since her encounter with Roman Polanski in 1977. Lawrence, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 